I like to podcast all of my readings because there's a, a nice bunch of you here, but maybe there's twice as many people who will eventually listen to this on tape. And I'm talking about Million Mile Road Trip, and it was Jeremy Lassen of Nightshade. I was having trouble selling the book to anybody. And uh, when you're starting, sometimes publishers will buy your books because they think, well, this has potential. This could be like Facebook stock. This is going to go up. And when you get to be my age, you have a track record. And I, I sort of almost feel sorry for publishers when they buy my books because they're all optimistic. But I, I know what's going to happen. You know. It's going to be another underground classic. <laughs> so, but uh, Jeremy said, I'll buy this, but I want to reprint your backlist. And at that point, uh, a number of my novels were out of print. I'd made a point of reverting some of them because I'd learned how to do self-publishing and I was republishing editions of my old novels. And Jeremy said, we'll do them all in this nice uniform edition. And that... For an old writer, that's kind of a, that's like a fantasy to have your books out in a nice uniform edition. They all look the same. They did that for Phil Dick's books, and it was nice. And so anyway, so that's Nightshade, and they did a, a beautiful job on this. And there's a bunch of other, they did actually 10 of my books this year, and uh, Borderlands has a bunch of them over there. And uh, Million Mile Road Trip, the idea behind it is that I like doing road trips. Uh, our daughters live out in the Midwest, more or less, and sometimes we'll drive out there. And you get into the rhythm of the road trip, and it's always sort of, I wish it could last longer. You know, I get to the California, and there's the Pacific Ocean. I mean, I could go back a lot around the south, but circle around, but it'd be nice if you could just go and go. And if you drive around Earth, I don't know how far it is. Maybe it's... Uh, 12,000 miles, something like that, 20,000 miles, but a million miles. What if you could do a road trip that was a million miles? So that's what I, I figured out here. I'm going to do that. It's sort of like the ultimate on the road, a million miles. And then I'm like, one difference between science fiction and fantasy, in either one, you just think of something you want to see happen. But in science fiction, you have to pretend that you have an explanation for it. You know? Just something plausible, sort of, you know. We don't just settle for a crystal or a wand, you know. We want some formulas and some space warps and good shit like that. So here I said, well, what we'll do, we'll imagine that there's a parallel world. If all else fails, you always use the parallel world. And so ours, they call Bali world because our planets are little balls. And the other one is called Mappy world because all the planets have been skinned and the skins are laid down like a quilt, and here's Mars, and here's Venus, and here's Kazakhstan, and here's, you know, some other world, robot world. And what about all the space in between them? Well, that's boring, you know, that's the trouble with intergalactic quests. There's all that, like nothing, you know, between here and there. So we'll just wad that up and put that into a bunch of rocks. So between each of these nice basins with a planet, there'll be this sort of mountain range around it. And that's like squashed up, we'll call it star stones, and the stars are in there. And so, cool. So to get over there, you use a, our old friend, the Einstein-Rosen Bridge, also known as the wormhole, to the less sophisticated. And uh, they're going to drive over there. Now, if they're going to drive a million 
miles, they need a really kick-ass vehicle. So they get a they get a car. I think it's a purple whale, you know, a very large station wagon, and then they get really big tires, you know, like airplane tires or monster truck tires, and they're made of graphene. They're like pure graphene crystals, very strong. And for the motor, you get a dark and dark energy motor. And for the shock absorber, you've got quantum shocks, so it's infinitely bouncy. So it's a really a kick-ass car. It can go a thousand miles an hour, no sweat. So they're going to get in that thing, and they're going to drive a million miles. And actually, there's a quest because they need to get to somewhere to get something. Actually, it's a wand, <laughs> a magic wand, that's going to save them because there's these evil flying saucers that are attacking Earth, and they want to take us over. Now, one thing I've done a couple of times, it's always seemed to me, I'm cool with there being flying saucers, but they're not going to be aluminum machines, okay? They're not going to be like airplanes. They're going to be something cooler than that. So I think they should be kind of like, kind of like manta rays. They're going to be made of meat. They're alive. They have holes in the bottom with teeth, you know, look out. And uh, so there's these living things, and there can be real little ones. You know, you might think you're getting your change in your pocket and something bites you, and there's a flying saucer hiding in there. So, anyway, so they're going to make this trip to get something to kill off the saucers. But right now, at the beginning, I originally wanted... Well, I'm always trying to dream of a way to have a bestseller. And I'm like, look, I'm always looking at what my friends do. Like, Corey, Corey Doctorow writes these kind of young adult novels. And I'm like, all right, I'll make this a young adult novel. And I'm going to have the characters are going to be, they're teenagers, basically. There's two of them. There's Zoe and Billy, and they're seniors in high school. And they're in Los Gatos, where I live. But I think maybe I call it Los Perros. And uh, the dogs and not the cats. And they're about to graduate. And so I'm setting it up so at the end we can have the really gorgeous traditional Hollywood ending where the saucers come and attack Los Gatos High School on graduation day. <laughs> and these are big saucers. They're like half a mile across, you know. And they've got these huge rays, you know, and there's this, this huge wormhole going to the... The, vil the highest villain in the book is this giant bagpipe. It's, nothing can be more evil than a bagpipe. And it's called Groon. Somehow, I, it's sort of like Jerry Falwell. <laughs> so we're, we're going to have that but here's Zoe and Billy and so I'm writing from their point of view so this first chapter and I'm not going to read for a really long time because often the question and answer period is more fun for you guys so chapter one first kiss Zoe Snap is a total outsider unable to finish anything on time and unwilling to work society's games she plays trumpets in, trumpet in her school's jazz ensemble. She refuses to polish her trumpet. She likes tarnish. She wears hoodies, t-shirts, and jeans. She makes her own jewelry out of crystals and rubber bands. Her best pal is skinny Villy Antwerpen, who lives a block or two away from her. Villy has zero ambition and poor self-esteem, but he gets what Zoe's about, and he'll always listen to her, to her and maybe she has a crush on him. Often, Billy gives Zoe a ride home. 
from school. Today's not strictly speaking a school day. Zoe Vili, let me make sure this is working. Yep. Often Vili gives Zoe a ride home from school. Today's not strictly speaking a school day. Zoe Vili and the other seniors just came for the afternoon to rehearse tomorrow's graduation ceremony. They didn't do the speeches or the reading of the names, and they didn't mess with the gowns, so it didn't take long. And now here they are in the parking lot like the end of a regular school day. Billy has an 80s beater wagon. He's pretty good at fixing things, but he has trouble with his math and science classes. Billy says he's dumb, but that's not exactly what it is. It's more that he's too practical, too into the physical world. He can pretty much figure out the inner workings of any gadget you hand him. Even so, there's still plenty of things wrong with his car. Because he's not in his garage all that much, more likely he's out surfing or riding his skateboard. All hail the purple whale, says Zoe, settling into the ancient car's wide, bench-style front seat. She does a low laugh and shakes her dark hair. She wears it in a bob with bangs, and then she uses her lively eyes to shoot Billy a sideways glance, which pretty much slays him, or at least that's what she likes to think. I might start calling the car the puce whale, says Billy. He has a straight mouth. When he smiles, it always starts with the corners. His hair is shades of blonde, streaked from sun and surf. His tan skin is somehow salty looking in a good way. Puce, says Zoe. She has a nicely shaped mouth with precisely edged lips. She often makes faces while she's talking, as if she's miming a commentary on her words. That way, if she happens to say something uncool, the implicit irony gives her a fallback. Here's Puce, says Billy, and shows Zoe a colored patch on his phone's screen, brownish purple. Very like your whale, says Zoe. I always thought Puce was a pukeful yellow-green. A common error, says Billy. He wiggles his dark eyebrows. He's wearing skinny jeans and a dark green t-shirt with a squiggle on it. Well-worn items, frayed and with just-so holes, accidental chic. You know a lot, says Zoe. Anything I know, I learned from games and comics and graphic novels, says Billy. School is a hoax. Years of useless brainwashing. He has a low voice with a bit of a scratch in it. He's nodding his head to his phone's music. Graduation tomorrow, exults Zoe. I used to sit in class, looking out the window, and I'd envy the people outside doing things, having lives. No teachers, no tests, and not being dissed by zerks like Tana Garvey. At least we'll be free. Billy's looking at her. Zoe feels she's too short and her breasts are nothing much. As for her butt, well, it's wider and rounder than it was when she was 11. <laughs> and boys have been known to stare after her in the hallway, brain-dead sexists that they are. <laughs> but when Billy looks at her, she's glad, and she likes looking at him. He has these flowing surfer muscles. He's never out of balance, always in the now, so unselfconscious. So male. All these unspoken, intense thoughts in Zoe's head. Billy starts the car. I saw you arguing with Tana before rehearsal today, he says. She and her friends were imitating you later on, laughing like hyenas. Really? Zoe's both annoyed and pleased. Usually I can hardly tell if Tana even hears me. She acts like I'm a tiny dog, way down at the limit of visibility, a barking ant. Snobby about what, says Billy, quoting, that's what you yelled at Tana today, 
for no reason, right out of the blue, like a crazy person. Snobby about what? He laughs. His laugh is a high, weird cackle. It's another thing that Zoe likes about him. Right, says Zoe with a plum. Snobby about what? Tana's dim. She wears mall store cougar clothes. She talks like a duck. So why snobby? She's a suffering fellow clown, says Billy with a shrug, crying on the inside. Billy has this annoying thing. At least Zoe thinks it's annoying. Here's this thing of identifying with people and understanding their feelings and empathizing with them. So boo-hoo. People take advantage of you because you're nice, she tells him. Meanwhile, Billy guides his unwieldy whale towards the exit of the high school parking lot. Kids are all around, carrying backpacks, working their phones, bopping to the music. Overhead, the seagulls swirl. Look up ahead, exclaims Billy. Tana beckons. She wants me, Zoe, because I'm too nice. He guns his engine, a manly roar. Actually, she's giving us the finger, says Zoe. Run her down. Billy gets with the program. He veers in a menacing way so that his purple whale wallows very close to the curb where Tana stands amid her coterie of friends. Squeals and yells. Somebody lands a thuddy kick on the whale's rear fender. Billy honks and drives on. If we killed Tana and I went to jail, at least I'd know what I'm doing this fall, says Zoe. <laughs> Gazing back at her enemies. What set me off before rehearsal with the sound of Tana making happy plans for a mall spree to assemble her college duds? Quack, quack. Strutting duck. Los Peros Boulevard is crowded with seniors in their cars. Billy has some jagged surf music on the car speakers. It's a recording of the garage band trio that he plays bass for. It's not a bad sound, although in Zoe's opinion, strictly as instruments, guitars are lesser than horns. It's the first week of June, and the misty blue sky is like a soap film. Palm trees line the wide street. Rats crawl up the palms and live in the dead fronds. Hazy forested foothills edge the scene. Homeless people live in caves up there. Maybe that's Zoe's fate. You need to get over being rejected by UC Berkeley, Billy is saying to her, and by those other two schools. He seems genuinely concerned. You haven't even looked into community college, have you? I keep waiting for mom to goad me into doing it, but she's crazy into being a realtor, and now she's even set herself up as a college admissions coach. As if. She started in March, and she has five clients. And you're not one of them. Mom nagged me for months to write my Berkeley application, the personal statement part. Uh, part. On the last possible day, I wrote that American Life is a blockbuster movie with hiccup anthems, but I want a life that's a flip card cartoon with squonky horns. Zoe smiles to herself and adopts a literary tone. My mother grew incoherent. In tears, she cast me adrift. I savored the surcease of nag. In my heart, I knew the hipster admission people at Berkeley would fully understand. Like, yes, Zoe, snap. I was so wrong. They wanted me to grunt an anthem. I'll never fit in anywhere. Tana's essay for Berkeley says she wants to tutor at-risk minority middle schoolers and monitor the environment for hidden toxins in our food supply, says Billy. She showed it to me. 
right before we did the deed on the padded bench in the weight room. Not funny, says Zoe, utterly dismissing this. Speaking of desperados, my half-sister Maisie has really been craving attention this week. She's like this touching, boyish Oliver Twist lassie who makes the best of a bad lot. A love child born by the foul, home-wrecking Sonny Weaver, with whom my dad lived for yea unto sixteen years. Maisie has it hard, says Billy. She has that funny bulge around her waist. It's not jiggly like fat. It's like she carries a rolled-up towel under her blouse. Maybe if I was closer to her, she'd explain herself, says Zoe. I can tell she wants to pour out her heart. She sends me selfies and calls me sista. I'm an outsider, but Maisie, wow. I do sit next to her in band practice, even though she's a junior. If I didn't at least do that, I'd have to douse myself with gasoline. Got a match? Stop it with the death wish routine, Zoe. You're a better person than you admit, and some of us care about you. Billy is looking at her, his pale brown eyes. Zoe feels something in her chest unknot. <clears throat> All of a sudden, she reaches over and runs her hand across Billy's cheek. So close, so close, so human, so real. Thanks, goes Zoe. Thanks for saying that. Maisie plays trombone, right, says Billy, like he's not sure what else to talk about right now. I like trombones, honking into the sky, loss of control. Maisie gets all impish and gleeful when she plays, says Zoe, enjoying the fancy words. She likes to bump me with the brass slide. Sister! <laughs> but she plays really well. She was teaching me a new riff after practice today, even though I wanted to edge away. And right then she gave me this really pretty pearl, and I was like too star stunned to really thank her. I don't see how you can think I'm a good person. Also, you're hot, says Billy. <laughs> I like your skin. Smooth and kind of dark. I always want to touch it. Zoe's sitting there with a total goofball smile on her face. You're hot too, she says. She's completely not ironic, completely unprotected. It's okay. It's safe with Billy. And now what? A silent interval takes by. I never see Maisie on weekends, Billy eventually says. Never at a party. It's like she leaves town. I wonder about that too, says Zoe. I do know she's into that flying saucer cult that meets in the community center, the New Eden Space Friends. <laughs> Plot element. Dad's old group. He used to say there's good saucers and bad saucers, and it's up to us to help the good ones win. Why am I even talking about this? It's okay, says Billy. I like your voice. If we weren't in California, maybe your father could have been a Baptist or a bird watcher <laughs> instead of becoming a vanished saucer nut. Billy pauses, then restarts. On the upside, if saucers are real, then it doesn't matter if we go to college because the end of the world is nigh. We're in a vortex of madness, declaims Zoe, living on borrowed time, soon to lie beneath sad white stones in a grassy dell. Death wish alert, chides Billy. Nix, nix. Reset. At least I'm still making jewelry. At least I still surf. Have you taken note of my necklace, asks Zoe, doing a geeky 19th century talk thing? I found, I found some stretchy strong plastic to use it for the string. The color of the string is puce. Yes. And the crystals are faceted so they shatter light into colors. You think they're tinted, but they're not. Her voice catches and her stream of chatter breaks. Oh, Billy, what are we going to do with our lives? You'll make jewelry and wail on your horn. I'll surf and work on my car 
And sometimes we'll drive around together and get food. Can't that be enough? <laughs> Mom doesn't think so. And I've reached a point where I physically can't do anything she tells me to. <laughs> it's like I'm paralyzed. Billy makes a mystic pass with his fingers as if awakening Zoe from a trance. Arise. College or job. College or job. I don't want a low job, says Zoe in a small voice. Even if they think that's all I deserve. A sales girl behind a counter. Submissively helping rude idiots by embarrassing medical aides. <laughs> she pokes at her phone. I know there's a registration page for Waste Valley Community College someplace here. All you need is to be a high school grad. But I keep delaying. Get it together, Zoe. Do it now. Me, I probably can't even go to West Valley, says Billy. I'm failing math. I'm not graduating. I don't know why I even go to the graduation rehearsal today. It would be bullshit for me to walk across the stage and not even get a diploma. Oh, Billy, says Zoe, in true sympathy. I didn't know. The grisly square root? The smelly log? That's math. <laughs> the grisly square root? The smelly log? I always think I understand, but on the test, I get a metal block. Also, the teacher doesn't like me. Can you take math in summer school? They have an online remedial course, but I don't want to do it. Studying online is for robots. My father, he pours every day of his life down the toilet of his screen. I want to be the opposite. If I can't graduate, maybe I should be a mechanic in a garage. Would your father let you do that? He'd think it was funny. He doesn't care what people say. But like you said, a job means regular work hours and a boss. Don't want? Plan B? I'll buy junker cars and fix them and sell them. Zoe is watching a seagull float along with the car like it's pacing them. The gull cruises over the town library, the mini-mart, the nail parlor, the Victorian mansions with flowering shrubs, the Route 17 overpass, the supermarket strip mall, and the flimsy old ranch houses that sell for $2 million each. The gull guiding itself with feather tip flicks, mindless, all knowing, in the good old now. The mic isn't going to pick up the questions from the audience, so I'll just dub in the questions. First question You must have teenage children. Well, they're all 40 now. <laughs> <laughs> But, yeah, I pay attention, you know, I pay attention, and, you know, I think about, I just know that thing about the inner dialogue, the way people really think, you know, it's not, like, written for TV, it's just to stay away from cliches, you know, so often, you'll get into using catchphrases that you've heard, and I try to always use things that I haven't heard, and that's, uh, and in a way, that teenager is still alive inside me. You know, it, it doesn't really go away. I still have such contempt for society. And why would that ever stop? Yeah. That's why I told my children. So they're all self-employed. Second question. What other books are you thinking of getting reprinted? Well, Nightshade did nine of them. Some of them are still in print from Tor. It's sometimes it's debatable if it's in print. You know, it's never in any stores. And you can do what they call revert the rights, and they don't really care if you can get a new publisher to do it. Again, I'm in this sort of limbo now where the editor I had at 
Nightshade, Corey Allen, he, he quit, so now my new editor there says he'd be interested in doing more stuff with me, but, you know, I don't really have a relationship with him yet. Also, we have to wait and see if these Nightshade titles sell. You know, if they if they don't sell very well, then they, they probably won't want to do more of them. So, uh, but for now, it's good. And right now, I'm just writing stories. I sort of don't, I'm just not up for writing another novel right now. It's kind of like, it's like rowing a boat across the Atlantic. Well, Terry Bisson has this saying, he says, writing as a story is like working in a garage and doing some body work on a car. You know, you wail on it for a week or two and then it's all set. And writing a novel is like being a farmer. <laughs> so you go out there month after month in the rain and do all this stuff. And uh, it depends. At some point, the way I start a novel is there's some idea I get obsessed with and then I develop that. I have a couple of ideas I'm into now, but I'm trying to dial it down and just make them into long stories. Or There's this new thing, Tor Books has started publishing novellas, uh, so I might do it. A novella is about 30,000 words. A novel is 80 or 90 or 100. So I might do one of those. Question three. Which of your books should I read first? Yeah, why not the latest one? <laughs> I keep getting better. So. <laughs> this one is actually, might be the best book I've ever written, in my opinion. There's something, I've always admired the, the writer Thomas Pynchon. And he wrote this masterpiece called Gravity's Rainbow. And I've read that book four or five times. And he has this really good style. Um, something you might... As a, if you're not writers, you might not notice this book is written in the present tense. And usually you don't write in the present tense, but that's Pinch, something Pynchon does. And it gives the, the, the story this cinematic quality, like you are there. And uh, also the thing of mingling in the, uh, the inner dialogue with the, the things that are happening. And being, you know, having long sentences and, and phrases that spin off each other. So I think I, I finally got that working <laughs> after... Uh, after 20 novels, finally sounding a little bit like Pynchon, the master's voice. So yeah, I think this is a great book. I have a lot of stories online. Uh, I have a book called Complete Stories. You know, Walt Whitman, he only had one book of poems. It was called Leaves of Grass. And every year he would revise it and it would get thicker. So that my complete stories, you know, you say, well, how can you do complete stories if you're alive? Well. I, that's a book I'm self-publishing, so every year I revise it and put in the new stories. And uh, if you just want to look at it, you can go online, and there's a, a free version of it that you can read online. The most recent story I read in there is called Juicy Ghost. It's kind of a... Well, check it out. I won't tell you what it is. It's sort of subversive. Uh, there's another story in there that's kind of interesting. It's called uh, The Man Who Was a Cosmic String. And uh, I think I might just read you the first page of that. And the reason is because this story, when I got here, we moved here in 1986. And uh, I had been living back east. I'd been working as a math teacher, math professor. And then I lost my job. We were in Lynchburg, Virginia, which was the home of Jerry Falwell. And one thing about a little town like that, you actually have a good social life because there's nothing else to do and you can pretty much walk to everybody's house. 
so people do a lot of entertaining and so we in a way it was kind of fun there in other ways it was less fun <laughs> but uh, I managed it first I quit working at all I decided at that point I'll be a freelance writer I've sold a couple of novels and uh, I was pulling in about $11,000 a year being a freelance writer which even in 1980 that wasn't very good money but uh, we kept it up my wife started teaching too and uh, but then I found out there was a chance to get a job at San Jose State and so I moved out here and uh, I'd never thought of living in California it was just you know I grew up in Kentucky and living in California that was like moving to the Sun or to Antarctica it just wasn't an option and uh, but we got out here in San Jose and they were really nice to me and I was like this this bird that has this special beak for eating certain kinds of seeds and there weren't any of those seeds in Lynchburg but here they were all over the place you know just <laughs> so I learned computer science and I was working as a software engineer and it was good it was good to be out here and then uh, I met these cool science fiction writers it was Richard Cadry approached me first and then uh, I met Mark Laidlaw and Michael Bloomline and Pat Murphy and uh, it was exciting it was really exciting and uh, Bloomline the first time I met him he had just shaved his head and people really didn't shave their head that much in 1986 but and he had this very odd demeanor very calm and he would never tell you anything about himself he would always ask you questions he was like kind of a mysterious guy I couldn't really figure out where he was at you know and so but then I thought I got a gig to write a, a story and uh, for some anthology and I, had, I modeled the main character on my idea of what Bloomline was like and I'll just read a little of this to just capture the vibe that he had the man who was a cosmic string as an acute care doctor in San Francisco I've seen many strange things Perhaps I've turned a bit strange myself. I work at a clinic 12 hours a week. I live alone. I wear my head shaved. I speak softly. I am a morphine addict. I am Jewish. I do not have AIDS. Michael said at least one of those statements is true. <laughs> I am my own man, but I have turned strange and stranger since I met the man who was a cosmic string. It happened two weeks ago in late November. It had been a long, sun-drenched day over the chalked pastel city of my birth. I love that phrase. Now I drive into San Francisco and just these blocks that you see off the freeway of all the houses. Chalk a block. This chalked pastel city of my birth. I was idle at home, staring out the attic window. The phone rang. It was one of my patients from the clinic. Her husband was sick. Yes, she understood I was off duty but could I come in, pro in a private capacity? If only as a friend, her husband was taken very bad, she would give me a gold coin. Please come right away. The woman's name was Bai Na Id. She was from Kayataskan, Kayataskan, a tiny island republic off the Thai-Burmese Isthmus of Kra. I had treated Bai Na for numerous small complaints. She was something of a hypochondriac, her English was odd but comprehensible. 
Once she'd passed gas while talking to me. We'd ignored it, but it was something I usually thought of when I talked to her. Popcorn fart. Of her husband, I knew nothing. They lived in the mission a short bus ride away. I agreed to come. It was growing dark when I got to the id home, a tiny houselet on the back of a lot. It was a converted garage. TV light flickered from behind draw curtains. I knocked and by knock came quickly to the door. Thank you for come, doctor. My husband is sick two days. Yes. Standing just inside the front door, holding the black lunchbox that I used for a medical bag, Blumlein did that. I could see the entire house. Here was the living dining room with two tiny girls watching TV and a boy on the couch doing homework. The children were long and pale, paler than by now. Perhaps their husband was American. My imagination raced. A failed priest? A renegade vet? A retired smuggler? How big would the gold coin be? Straight ahead was the kitchen and laundry room. A fourth child stood by the sink, a smooth, perfect teenage girl, her skin like dirty ivory. The children all ignored me, letting social custom replace the walls their house lacked. The TV was turned down very low. I could hear the dishes clanking beneath the sink water. I could hear the chugging motor of the fridge. There was another sound as well, an odd, sputtery hiss. I looked alertly at Bayana, waiting for info. The less I say, the more my patients tell me. Baina was a short woman with prominent cheekbones and the kind of pointed glasses that lower middle class white women used to wear. She seemed worried, but also somewhat elated, perhaps at having gotten a doctor to come to her home. The hissing was definitely coming behind the bedroom door. I wondered if her husband were psychotic. I imagined him crouched behind the door, mad-eyed with a machete, but no, surely not. The children were acting calm and safe. He'd been like this before, Doctor. When I find him first time on beach, he's sick like this very bad, three day and three night. My father cure him, but that medicine is all gone. That's a bad sign when you find your husband lying on the beach. Well, let's have a look at him. What's his name? We call him Filbert. You're, you sure you're ready to see? Let me get gold coin right now to be fair. Yes. Bina spoke to her children in sliding, slanging phonemes. The boy on the couch got up, turned off the TV, and herded his small sisters to the kitchen. The girl at the sink gave me a sudden, amused smile. Her gums were bright red. I wondered how she would smell, so unlike her tired, yellow mother, who now pressed into my hand the smallest disc that I have ever heard called a coin. It was the size of one of those paper circles that a hole puncher makes. I pocketed it, wondering if I would be able to get home without losing it. By now, open the bedroom door. If you want to see the rest, look up. Just Google Rudy Rucker Complete Stories, and then you'll find it there. And the story's called The Man Who Was a Cosmic Stream. I should mention that this story isn't really all that much like Bloomline. It was just an image I had of him after I first met him in 1987, and he made such a heavy impression on me. Over the years, I guess the 30 years since then, we got to know each other better, and I spent time with him whenever I had a chance. I often saw Bloomline give talks here. He was a funny guy. He was, like I mentioned before, he was not forthcoming. He would always, he was a doctor, so he was good at turning it around, and he would ask you, 
he's very empathetic. He'd really relate to what he said, but it was hard to get information out of him. And when he would give readings, for some odd reason, he usually didn't read from his book. I don't know why he would do this. I, I bugged him about it a lot. But he would always act like he was listening to me, but he would never, never change what he did. He was the doctor. Seven years ago, his wife Hillary, they celebrated her 60th birthday, and they had this wonderful party at a... Uh, there's this restaurant over on Mission. I don't remember if they're still open. It's an African place. And a uh, beautiful party. Michael was wearing this outfit. He w wasn't fat. He was so healthy. You know, he, when a, you know, doctors, they know what they're supposed to do, and some of them do it. And it was like, he looked like uh, uh, like a disco person, you know, like Saturday Night Fever. You know, so. and, and then a week later, they found out he had cancer. And it wasn't any light kind of cancer. They cut out one of his fucking lungs. And then that wasn't enough. They went in and took out half the other lung. So he was living on half a lung for seven years. And they did all sorts of therapy. At first, you know, well, I thought he was going to die, you know, within months. But they kept finding fixes. They were doing gene therapy and this and that. So he hung in for a really long time. And the day before yesterday, he actually had a heart attack. It was like his body was not going to wait for the cancer. It was like enough. He wrote a wonderful essay about the prospect of being about to die. And uh, Jacob here, they organized this thing called SF, SF and SF, Science Fiction in San Francisco. And they meet every two weeks once a month, and they have this cool place, it's the Museum of Publishing, it's over on Natoma Street, I think, in Clementina, it's, you look on the map, and, uh, and Bloomline, actually Bloomline and I were the featured speakers, and I, I was reading something, I think I was reading from uh, Return to the Hollow Earth, that was my previous novel, and he was telling, reading this essay he'd written, there was a collection of stories that in some way related to Thoreau in one way or another. And he was started out talking about Thoreau, and then he segued into talking about how it felt to be knowing you were doomed to die fairly soon. And it was just so amazing and heavy and, and brilliant. And actually, I managed to tape that. It's, you can find it as a podcast online. If you look at my recent tweets or Facebook, I had a, a link to it. And... Uh, I've had, I don't know, maybe five or six really good friends have died now. And it's just, <clears throat> one of the things about getting older is to just see them thinning out. It's tough. And people don't come back. That's the thing. <clears throat> when you're younger, you somehow don't quite get that. You know, he'll be dead, but, you know, I'll see him again. You know, but you don't. You don't see them again. I have this really heavy thing that I'll read to you and then I'll probably break down but it's a poem an eastern mystic called Jela Jela Luden Rumi or just Rumi for short and once we had a friend she was a neighbor and she died two doors up from us and 
I just found this book on their bookshelf and I opened it and it opened to this page and I read this to her while she was lying there dying. And it felt so appropriate. And uh, so I looked it up today and I, I gave a copy to Bloomland's wife. I saw her just, just a few hours ago. So here we go. It's called Say I Am You. <clears throat> I am dust particles in sunlight. I am the brown sun. <laughs> to the bits of dust I say, Stay to the sun, keep moving. I am morning mist and the breathing of evening. I am wind in the top of a grove and surf on the cliff. Mast, rudder, helmsman, and keel. I am also the coral reef they found her on. I am a tree with a trained parrot in its branches, silence, thought, and voice. The musical air coming through a flute, a spark of stone, a flickering in metal. Both candle and the moth crazy around it. Rose and the nightingale lost in the fragrance. I am all orders of being. The circling galaxy, the evolutionary intelligence, <laughs> the lift and the falling away, what is and what isn't. You who know Jelarudin, you the one and all, say who I am, say I am you. So I don't know, I think we're about done. <laughs> <laughs>